Well, maybe you saw it in the news, or maybe you have a Jewish friend, but a week and a half ago, uh, Jews celebrated something called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And Jews around the world on this day confess their sins, they fast, they stop all that they're doing. No work, no shopping, no interaction, no nothing. They just spend a whole day focusing on the sins of the last year. Something that's all the way back to the Old Testament. And they still do it today. You go to Jerusalem on Yom Kippur, you're going to find the streets are empty. What is busy? Cars going all, you can lay in the middle of the street. There's literally no cars out on the road. Take it very seriously. But in addition to, do, to doing all this, during Yom Kippur, Jews go to synagogue. And as they go to synagogue, they hear the rabbi read an entire Old Testament book together. They hear it read. And what is the book? The book of Jonah. And when it's done, what do they say? They say in unison, we are Jonah. Pretty amazing, isn't it? This little tiny book, but teaches us much about repentance. It's a reminder to the Jews about this idea of, hey, let's remember the heart of God, and let's remember who he is and how we represent him well. Even the early church, uh, when they met underground because of persecution in places around Rome and, and other parts of Europe, you can find in the catacombs, the, the caves underground where the church would meet because they were so afraid of persecution and death above ground. They would meet underground in these caves. And in the caves, the catacombs, you can find drawings on the wall where they actually are drawing the pictures of the story of Jonah. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. To remember God's missionary heart for the world, to remember as they see these that we have a part to play and who will we be in this story. So if you've, been, if you've been with us, I want to encourage you to turn to Jonah chapter 4. This is our, our wrap-up to the Jonah series. As we do that, just by way of just very brief review, I'm going to fly through this because you've heard this before if you've been with us, that this is not a story about Jonah and his big fish. This is about Jonah and a very big God, a great God. And the irony is, as we've been saying, that everyone and everything changes in the book of Jonah except Jonah. And that's why it's in the genre of irony or satire. And the good news is that God loves you, and the bad news is that God loves all of your enemies just as much as he loves you. And we see this stubborn disobedience in Jonah in chapter 1, right? Absolutely, I will not go. And he tries to take a boat the other direction uh, to flee the presence of God, another point of irony in the book. And then we see in chapters 2 and 3 his resentful obedience. Fine, dang it, and he just digs in his heels, and he, fine, I'll do it because you told me to, God. And he goes in that willful uh, disobedience is replaced by condescending and arrogant obedience. And both were missing the point, right, that irreligion and religion are both things that are enemies of God. And yet God's grace was so deep that despite the disobedience and the condescending obedience that God still used Jonah in the midst of all this to see the greatest coming together of Gentiles in their conversion the world had ever seen. And this is good for us to be reminded of that if God can use someone like Jonah, he can use anybody. And that we don't have an excuse to say, well, if you knew what I've done, if you knew where I've been, if you know what I've been up to, there's no way God would ever rescue me. And so that excuse is gone because of what we read in the book of Jonah. So that's chapters 1, 2, and 3. And now that you've turned to, to Jonah chapter 4, I'm going to invite Liz McEwen up. And Liz is going to read uh, Jonah chapter 4 for us.
Gideon, and this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Thank you, Liz. You know, one of the things I love about this, I think this is the most important chapter of the whole book. We talked a few weeks ago how we think that as soon as Jonah is swallowed by the big fish and he's vomited back on shore, most of us have probably thought, that's the end. Chapter 4 is amazing. I hope you caught, there's so much what Liz just read. And keep your Bibles open or your phone open, because I want us to look at some of these things, and maybe there's some, some things that you see along the way too. Now, before we do that, I want you to show you a quick slide. Here, look at all the miracles that happen in Jonah. Now, it's easy for us to read it, you know, sort of with these glossy, glossy lenses when we read something like Jonah. God causes a storm. He calms a storm. A big fish comes, swallows Jonah up. He survives three days and three nights inside of a fish. That in itself is a miracle. God commands the fish to vomit it. He's okay. He's alive. He's on dry land. Nineveh experiences widespread repentance. Amazing miracle. And then the Lord raises up a plant, a worm, and, a wi and the wind. Amazing stuff. So we see creation. We see nature. We see repentance happening in people's hearts. All of what God's doing in terms of miracles that exist in this story. But let's look, starting, just starting in verse 1, right? Because God's doing something Jonah doesn't want, right? And so right away we see that he's just totally ticked off. And notice the pattern. I want you to notice the anger that exists throughout the book, especially in chapter 4. And Jonah says something, talk about irony. Listen to this beautiful thing. He says, I know that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, some of us who've grown up in church have probably heard that phrase, right? Maybe we've heard this idea of God being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and compassion. 
And if I said, guess where that's from? You might say, the Psalms? Maybe Jesus? It's Jonah. Jonah's the one that says that. And what's ironic about that? Because Jonah's not gracious. He's not compassionate. He's quick to anger. And he doesn't show any love. He does not abound in it. The messenger of God does not reflect the message of God. And you know what? If I were Jonah, if I'm really being honest, I'm probably embarrassed. I'm probably embarrassed if I'm Jonah because I'm a failed prophet. What I said would happen doesn't happen. So if I say something's going to happen as a prophet and it doesn't happen, what do we call those people in America? False prophets. <laughs> I think he's pretty embarrassed. The destruction that he prophesied about didn't happen. And so he's so angry, maybe embarrassed, but he's definitely angry. And he's so angry, he says, I want to die. Now, don't skip over this. Some of us have been impacted by suicide, a family member. Maybe some of us have struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts. Some of us work with people every day in schools or as counselors with other people that have or currently are struggling with suicidal thoughts. Jonah had to be in an incredibly rough place. That anger and that disillusionment and that frustration have to be a level to a level of depth beyond what we might read here in this particular story on the surface. This is serious. And Jonah knows all the right answers. Theologically, he was correct regarding all the information about God. At least he thought he was. But his heart was so off. I want you to think about anger in your own life, right? We, we all experience different levels of anger. The truth is this. Whatever we're angry about reveals actually what we care most deeply about. What makes you angry? If you're honest with someone, if they were to ask that question, what makes you angry, they'll be able to tell what you really care about. What matters to you? What are the priorities in your life? Jonah's anger certainly reveals a lot about who he is. Your anger reveals a lot about who you are. And then in verse 5, he, he does something that, I'm not sure what I think about this guy Jonah. He still thinks that, he's just holding out that maybe God will actually destroy the city. So he goes up in the east side of town, and, and he goes up there, and he, he pitches his tent. And he says, and he was there to just wait to see what would happen to the city. He got comfortable. He wanted courtside tickets to watch the destruction of the city that he came to prophesy against. He came to watch it burn to the ground. That's messed up. And while he's there, God provided a vine, a leafy plant, a vine, some sort of gourd plant for Jonah that while he's standing there wanting to watch the destruction of the city and in the heat, and if you've ever been in the Middle Eastern heat and the Middle Eastern winds, it's awful. It is awful. It's like a hair dryer. It is awful. And God in his graciousness, while Jonah wants to watch the city burn to the ground, God in his graciousness 
provides shade for Jonah. How deep is God's compassion? He's even willing to provide comfort to somebody that's still so rebellious internally with him. That's amazing. And notice this line in your Bible there. What is that? Verse 6. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Of all the things that Jonah's been upset about, significant things, this is the first time he's happy about something, anything in the whole book. And what is he happy about? A stupid plant. Sorry, Cindy, I know you, you work with <laughs> landscape architects. I shouldn't say stupid plants. But in this case, it is in terms of his priorities. Jonah's angry about God's compassion with Nineveh, and yet he's happy about a vine. In verse 7, God provides a worm to chew the vine. God says to the vine, grow. And he says, yes, Lord. And, he, and then the worm, yes, Lord. I'll chew the vine. So the vine's obedient. The wind is obedient. The worm is obedient. And he says to the wind, blow. Yes, Lord, I'll blow. And this scorching east wind comes. And Jonah feels so faint. He wanted to die again. And why did he want to die again? Because that gourd he was so happy about, 24 hours prior, that didn't even exist, is now gone, and he's ticked off. I mean, this is hilarious. This is pathetic. And what would you say to Jonah if you had a chance to sit next to him during this whole ordeal, everything? What would you tell him? What would you talk to him about? Or would he be so angry you'd be afraid to say anything to him? His priorities are slightly off here. But it's also convicting, and here's why. This is what I wrestled with this week. What do I care about of the gourds or the vines of my own convenience and comfort and happiness more than what God wants? Where are the times I say, I would prefer a vine. I like this, and it makes me happy about really trivial, vain things when God's heart and what he's calling me into over here, I go, I don't want to do that. I don't want that. Because i got to lay down the idol of convenience, the idol of preference, the idol of reputation, the idol of this is going to be harder than I want it to be. So we have to be really careful, especially as Americans and as American Christians, we have no idea what a theology of suffering looks like. Because we've placed convenience on the altar and we worship it and it's so normal we don't even know how much we worship it. Me included. This is huge for us to wrestle with, this idea of a gourd and a vine that grows up and where are we happy and where are we angry. Again, look at the obedience throughout the book. Wind, sailors, fish, king of Nineveh, people of Nineveh, the animals of Nineveh, a vine, a worm, a wind, and all who isn't obedient is Jonah. And Jonah says, I want to die. Again, seems a little extreme. This is the third time in the book Jonah is suicidal. So there are two here. What's the other kind? What's the other, t the other time? What's that? Yeah, throw me off the boat. Fine, I'm done. I'll, I'll, I'll die. Three times, Jonah, in 48 verses, it records he's suicidal. Then verse 9, what God said to Jonah... What he said to him back in verse 4. Do you have any right to be angry? 
Do you have any right to be angry? I think if God asked me that, I hope I would say, no, you're right, I really don't, I'm sorry. But what does Jonah do? He steps up toe-to-toe, goes, you better believe I have every right to be angry. Whoa, this guy's got some spunk in him. He tells God, you better believe it. Our anger reveals what we care about most deeply. What are you angry about? What do you get angry about? Is that your vine? And that's where God says, look, you're concerned about the plant. You had nothing to do with it. You didn't plant it. You didn't make it grow. Yet you're more concerned with this 24-hour plant than all the people of Nineveh, 120,000 people. I've created this, I've created them, I've created this city. You care more about this little plant than you care about all these people that I have a heart for. Jonah, the messenger of God, is quarreling with God about how great God's love is. He was so enamored with Israel, he said, no, 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 God is for us, not for all of them. Remember we talked about how the church today is often like the Israel of the Old Testament. Where do we as a church, capital C, the American church, say, no, 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 God's for us, but not for them. Or maybe, where do we do that here at Renew? Well, God's for us, but not for those people. He's for us. God, you can't be for them. You're on our team. You're on our side. And notice the last verse, because this is huge. This is where just verse 11. Look at that in your Bible. 120,000 people. And it also has this weird phrase. Should I not be concerned about 120,000 people and many cattle as well? What is that about? Are we talking about cattle wearing sackcloth and ashes before all of a sudden the cattle are back in this? What is going on? See, when the good news is good news, it's for the redemption of all of creation. We see that in Genesis. We see that in Revelation. That God's heart is so big, it's not just for people. It's for all of creation coming back to him. We talk about being the renewed community. We have been renewed by God for those of us who've crossed the, uh, crossed the line of faith and followed him. We are continually being renewed, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, but we also join with God in the renewal of all things, which he will restore all creation back to himself at the end of time. God is expressing his heart that's so big, not just for people, but everything that he's created, even the cattle. And notice the last line of the book. Did you catch it? I love the way Liz read it, because it's exactly how it should be read. Should I not be concerned with the great city? That's it. It's the end of the book. There's no answer. Did it get cut off? Is it incomplete? Nope. Jonah doesn't answer God. At least we don't know what his answer is. It stops suddenly. This cliff, the cliffhanger, this is the most anticlimactic book in your entire Bible. It never resolves. You see, the writer isn't concerned about Jonah's answer. The writer's concerned about our answer. What are we going to do? This is like a lot of Jesus' parables, right? 
He sets it up. He asks a question. He doesn't answer it. Again, think about the prodigal son story. We never get how the older son responded when the father talked to him. Why? Because it's thrown on us to say, what will you do? What will we do? How will we respond? It's a question with no answer. It's brilliant. God cares so much about people that he actually invites us as the listeners and the readers into the story itself. There is no resolution because it's up to us now. So what happened? Let's surmise for just a second. What happened? How do you think Jonah responded? Did Jonah spend the rest of his life avoiding God and his creative, com comprehensive love? Or did Jonah finally learn and become a great pastor to the people of Nineveh? Did he wear sackcloth and ashes and repent and say, I'm so sorry for judging you, for taking so long to understand God's heart for you? I now get it. Did he go away angry? Did he return to Joppa? Did he try to take a ship and actually go to Tarshish and live there? Or did, it, did his pride melt away into tears and repentance as he really embraced for the first time God's surprising mercy? Did he dig in his heels? Did he become angry? Did he commit suicide? Or was he embarrassed by his small view of God of how trivial he had made religion? Now, we don't know. We're never told the answer to the book. And I love the brilliance of the storyteller in this. The point of the book of Jonah is this, to tell the story of God's compassion, to show with great hilarity and irony how Jonah is just not getting it, and then to provide us, the reader, the listener, a chance for us to answer the question of God. And I love how the, the feedback that's, that's happened over this series for many of you. And uh, it's been fun to hear from Michael, Michael Phelps, and Aubrey uh, have interacted uh, with me on this. And both of them came up with the same thing, which made me smile. They said this, Jerry, you started by saying that most scholars believe Jonah wrote the book. So wait a second. Even though Jonah didn't change in the book, if Jonah is in fact the author, the good news is this. He changed. I don't know how, how, how long that period of time went by that he actually changed, but Aubrey pointed out something that was really good I hadn't thought about. She said, if Jonah wrote the book, he made himself look really awful in what he wrote. Think of the humility that Jonah would have to write with to make himself look so foolish in order for God to look so great. That's a great line, Aubrey. That'll preach. So what about us? Right? Scripture is a window. Scripture is a mirror. Let's look in the mirror. What about us? What about you? Let's talk about you personally before we talk about us. Will you, will every one of us here realize how gracious and patient and generous our God is and relent and repent and change our, way, our ways in the areas where we might be angry. Where are you angry and what will you do with your anger? Some of you may feel as though you've been running from God, not literally or geographically, but spiritually and internally. You may be angry or feel shame 
And here's the deal. You may take it out directly on God, or it may be more subtle than that. You may take it out on God indirectly by taking it directly, all your anger at the church. You may be taking it indirectly out on God, but directly at renew. Maybe that's an area of anger or healing that needs to happen. And some of you may have the arrogance of Jonah regarding others that don't deserve God's grace. What might God be telling you right now? How do you handle that? No, God, this is just for us and not for them. Maybe instead of the Jews, like the Jews, instead of us saying we are Jonah, maybe some of us need to say we are the Ninevites. Where you don't know your right hand from your left spiritually. <laughs> or other people we may know who think, well, they don't know their right hand from their left spiritually. Regardless of who we are in the story, that we're called to understand and respond to the heart of God. To realize that everyone that came in contact with God changed. Even if slow to the party, it looks as though Jonah changed later. I want you to think for a moment as we, about God's big love for us. Many of you know that I love Eugene Peterson. He's an author and writer, the guy that translated the message translation of the Bible. But he, he wrote a, a time about when he was five years old. He, he lived out west. It's very rugged and rural, lots of farming. And he walked across the meadow in his backyard uh, to the fenced fields of the farmers um, behind him. And he'd stand at the fence line at five years old, and he'd watch Leonard Storm, big farmer, plow the field with his enormous tractor. And he wanted more than anything to ride on his John Deere tractor. And maybe one day, Brother Leonard Storm would invite him up on the tractor. Brother Storm was about 100 yards away when he spotted little Eugene. And he stopped the tractor, and he stood up from his seat, and he made strong, waving motions at him like this. And Peterson said that he looked mean and angry and so it, with his large bib overalls and a straw hat. And he was yelling at Eugene. The wind was blowing and the engine was on. He couldn't hear what he was saying. He's just seeing him do this. Eugene felt it embarrassed. I, I'm doing something wrong. I shouldn't be here. Like five-year-old boys are often in trouble and in the wrong place. So he turned and he went home feeling rejected and rebuked. And Leonard and Olga Storm were huge Norwegian farmers. Um, they went to the same church. They always sat in the back row. They hardly ever smiled. Um, but they were affluent, and when the church was short, the church would go to them and say, yeah, we'll cover it, whatever the cost is. And very cold Norwegian but strong-working people. And on a Sunday morning after you, little Eugene, at five years old, felt dejected, at the edge of the field, Brother Storm approached him after worship and he said, Hey, little Pete, why didn't you come out in the field on Thursday and ride the tractor with me? I told him, he said, I told him, I, I didn't know I was allowed to. I, th I thought you were chasing me away. I was doing something wrong. And he said, I called you to come. I waved you to come. Why'd you leave? And Eugene said, I, I didn't know that's what you were doing. He said, What do you do when you want somebody to come near you? And Eugene said, like this? And Brother Storm said, Ah, that's piddly stuff, little Pete. He said, We do things big on the farm. 
Some of us may feel like God is doing this to us. The great thing is, is that our God goes big on the farm. Come! Everybody! I love you, just come! And some of us may be hearing that as anger. And we can't quite hear what God's saying, and we think, oh, that's not for me, it's for others. But God goes big on the farm. Come on, join me! That's what jo the book of Jonah is, join me! So what about the role of the church? What about us? Not just individuals, but how about us as a church? Now, this story can be scary for us as a church because it messes with religious people, because it calls us out of our Christian bubbles and into a world that's messy and controversial and scary and out of our comfort zones. And Jonah knows that God is gracious, but not to those people, to us, God, not to them. Isn't that what the political election talk is all about? Not them, God, it's us. It's our vote. Not them. How could God love them? How could God love him? How could God love her? And so who are those people in your mind? Who are them to you? And is God's heart for them different than what you think about them or those people? So the role of the church, very simply, is to reflect the heart of God. People say, what's the, what, what's the point of church? The role of church is to reflect the heart of God, plain and simple. And when we learn a lot about the heart of God, we learn a lot about the heart of God in this, don't we? And sometimes God's grace is so scandalous, it infuriates the most religious of people that think, well, God's for me and for us. He's meant to be shared. And when we don't represent the heart of God in our role as a church, I think it just breaks God's heart. It causes lots of damage and confusion to people going, oh, I guess God's angry at me because he's waving his arms at me and I must not be allowed to join the tractor. We've read this before over the years, but I just think this is just an anchoring passage for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is our role. This is our role as a church. When we join with God's heart, listen for God's heart, and then listen for the way in which it turns around. And we have a role to play as the renewed community, joining God in the renewal of all things. 2 Corinthians 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us then the ministry of reconciliation. God's heart is reconciliation. And then he says, now you get a chance to wave your arms with me to have people join in on the party on the tractor too. It gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. But he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. Pipes. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And now it's our turn for us as a church. We stand up and we wave our arms and go, hey, listen, look at me. It's not about me. Look at the guy on the tractor over there. That God right there wants you and he loves you and he's not angry. Come on, look, look, it's him right here. That's our role as a church. So now it's our turn, and the question of the entire book is this. How will we answer the question of the last line of Jonah? And I think it's so big, I'm not sure we can all answer it right now. But it's something we have to always wrestle with as a church, and it's why I love this book. Because it comforts me and it messes with me every time I read it in a new way. So when you came in, you should have received an index card. You're used to this. We did index cards last week. Um, we didn't turn our index cards in last week. Uh, we wrote about our enemies. We prayed about our enemies when we were together at the gathering. Um, but here's what we want to do. Next week, we're having our fifth Sunday time together. Big pot luck. Very excited about it. We've done that in the past. It's been wonderful. We're excited to do it again. But we want to have a wrap-up discussion about Jonah. So make sure we get it before we move on. And so I want to just give about two or three minutes. And if you didn't get a pen, we've got some pens like in the back, right, right outside the door. Um, I want to just take a couple minutes, and we actually want you to turn it in. You don't have to put your name on it. You can if you want. It's fine. But I want you to just take a couple minutes to reflect over the series if you've been with us or even today, because here's what we want to do. What did you already know but you need to be reminded of through the series? There are a lot of things that I just know but I forget. What have been those things for you you've been reminded of with Jonah? Or what did you learn for the first time about Jonah you had no idea was in the book? What did you see through this series? What implications does it have for us? I want us to have a discussion further of how will we respond. We'll do that next week. And then lastly, where is there still confusion or questions where you just say, hey, I'm just not getting it. I know we've talked about it. I just still have some, I'm just not sure how that connects in Jonah. Because we want to spend some time next week talking about it. So would you just take two or three minutes right now and then in just a minute, uh, I'm, uh, we're, uh, I will pray. And then what I'd like for you to do is uh, either during intermission or during communion, if you just place it on the table up here, on the communion table. That's totally fine. But uh, you can put your name on it if you want. You don't have to. But we would love that as a way of listening and then helping our discussion of how we'll respond uh, next week during our time. So just take a minute or two to prayerfully reflect on this, and then I will close our time in prayer. Now, if you're still working, that's, that's fine. I'm going to pray here, and if you're not finished, that's okay. Um, maybe if there's a couple minutes during intermission, you want to finish filling that out, or appropriate times during uh, worship, or even to stick around after um, to put it on the table, um, or hand it to us afterwards, that's fine. But um, let me pray for us, and uh, then Ben will come up and share a few opportunities for us before intermission. Father God, um, we thank you for this tiny little explosive, dangerous, messy, encouraging, shocking, jolting book of Jonah. Lord, we're more Jonah than we often are willing to admit, and you are God who is always God, and your love for all people, your love for all creation to be redeemed and brought back. So God, I, I pray that where we need to have some things changed in our own hearts, 
Would you make that clear to us? And would we have the humility to confess that? Maybe even at the communion table in just a few minutes. To say, my heart is not reflecting the heart of God. Lord, uh, maybe for those of us who are being faithful to your heart, would you allow us to hear affirmation of well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, may we be a church that waves our arms and says, hey, we want to get your attention, not for us, but to point you to the farmer on the tractor who's waving his arms saying, come on up here and ride with me because I love you. Lord, for some of us, we have an image of God of just a little index finger curling back and forth. But I pray we'd see a God who's flailing his arms at us, who loves us that much. God, thanks for your goodness. Thanks for this book. Thanks for this time together. Thank you for this community that's willing to wrestle and give feedback and interact and process and pray and read through it in house churches and discuss it further. May this be something that gets and stays in our bloodstream. We thank you for this, God. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. As J.R. talked about, uh, one of our callings as a church is to reflect the heart of God. And so we just want to highlight um, some of the ways that we have opportunities to.